Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Landry Ayers. Today we'll be soaring into the vast expanse of the galaxy's outer rim, past the reach of the New Republic, and among the decrepit, crumbling outlaw planets once under the yoke of the now fallen Empire. We'll be talking about none other than the Mandalorian. This is the way. Joining me in this den of scum and villainy are an array of dastardly crooks, including returning guest, Star Wars superfan Nicholas Armstrong. Happy to be here. Cato Research Fellow, Pat Eddington. Greetings. The Cato Institute's Director of Health Policy Studies, Michael Cannon. This is the way. And host of the Beltway Banthas podcast and author of the forthcoming How the Force Can Fix the World, Stephen Kent. The Force is strong on this call. (laughs) Thank you all for joining me today. Uh, Sadly, Natalie could not be with us, but uh, I think I'll be able to handle this for today. When when Natalie is away, the nerds will talk about Star Wars. (laughs) (laughs) And I think compared to some of our previous Star Wars episodes, I'm hoping that uh, we'll be in a little bit more consensus about how much we enjoyed this compared to The Rise of Skywalker, (laughs) which uh, actually happened just about a year ago today. The Mandalorian, which as of our recording has just finished season two, is pretty clearly, even more so than previous Star Wars movies, uh, a Western, really, even though it is in space. And a lot of the Star Wars movies have that Western influence and are kind of cowboy films. I think more than any other, it really tries to emulate that genre um, between the shootout on the main avenue on Corva with the gunslinger or meeting Marshall Cobb Vanth on Mos Pelgo, what does the stylistic choice of that genre and really hammering at home do for the setting and the characters that previous installments in the series have not done before or perhaps not done to the extent that The Mandalorian has? Well, I'll jump in, Landry. I think it that what makes the Mandalorian work from my perspective is that it is largely character driven. I think that Star Wars is always at its best when it's character driven. I think that's what made episodes four and five work so well. Um, to a, to a lesser extent, uh, uh, uh the rest of the, the, the rest of the universe, but the, the Western genre with the Mandalorian, uh, puts, uh, Mando, Dinjarin, in these, in these situations where he's sort of wandering through this, this, this untamed wasteland of the universe and, uh, all, all these experiences that he's encountering with, uh, with different characters in different places are having this slow transformative effect on his character. Uh, certainly the, the, the biggest transformative effect comes from Grogu and, uh, and the attachment that he develops to Grogu, but there are others, uh, along the way that you can see, uh, sort of wreaking this, uh, this, this change in his, in his character that I think is what makes the Mandalorian compelling. One of the, the things that I think about the stylistic choices with the Mandalorian 
And I say this as a contemptible millennial who has never sat down to watch a Clint Eastwood uh, Western. Um, I don't care about it's like Western, you know, uh, um, appeal about like how they sort of echo like, you know, samurai stories. And, you know, there, there's, there's kind of like all this film nerd, um, criticism that goes into like the movie reviewing industry. And they're like, Oh, well, you might have noticed in the, the episode with Ahsoka when she stands off with the, the lady, the ex imperial, um, and they have this moment in the garden that it's like, you know, a nod to, to samurai films. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. It's just really beautiful. And that's what matters is that like those genres make space for really beautiful cinematography and focus on landscapes. And not just that, um, like, uh, like Michael noted, is moving between environments. Like you've got this character who is on an adventure, and then every episode is like a serial. Like today, the Mandalorian is solving this problem. Tomorrow, the Mandalorian is three days later, and he's solving this problem. And it's like a comic book in some ways. And that kind of storytelling works really well for Star Wars, uh, just like I think with George Lucas. Like he liked that about Buck Rogers and all that kind of stuff. Like that's Star Wars format at its best. Yeah, I, I think that the the beauty of it is it does let you explore so much of the galaxy. Uh, you kind of get on your horse, the lamentably lost Razor Crest, uh, and fly around to a new town and new characters, and you get to meet weird, zany mechanics and uh, interact with Tuscan Raiders on one episode and meet a frog lady in the next one. And it, it doesn't interrupt the narrative because the narrative is, as uh, as Stephen said, hopping from place to place on your journey. I think that's one of the beautiful things about Westerns is it's sort of moving through the West. It's not just one place and one uh, person. It's, it's sort of the collection of uh, the tapestry of the West, which in Star Wars is a, a beautiful opportunity for storytelling as long as you can spread out a little but keep care- focused on that character. So as the oldest guy on this, uh, on this particular podcast, uh, I'm happy to say that I fully appreciate uh, the the Western angle of this. I am a I have I have always been and remain a huge Clint Eastwood fan. Um, I, I will say though that this is not uh, it's not exactly like the outlaw Josie Wales. Definitely, definitely not like High Plains Drifter. Um, but what I think is also compelling for me it's it's not just this development, uh, this character development that that has been alluded to. But we are getting like some for those for those who are listening to this, if you've seen everything, okay, if you have seen the Clone Wars animated series, if you've seen Star Wars Rebels animated series, if you've seen all the movies up to this point in time, then you are probably well aware that there are some massive uh, spoilers and foreshadowing of things to come that have been sprinkled all throughout these first two seasons. And that's, I think, the part that has me really excited uh, my, my biggest complaint, quite frankly, with the movies, um, certainly the, this last trilogy, has been that they have had people at the helm who clearly did not understand Star Wars, and, and at least to me. J.J. Abrams is a great director, but the only guy that they've had helm a film that's known what the hell he's doing is Gareth Edwards. Yep. And that's, and that, and that's Rogue One, right? Rogue One is my favorite film in the entire canon, in the entire series. Um, and I think a big reason for it is because it has this kind of grit that is in the Mandalorian. And that to me, that's what makes the Mandalorian feel so real. I mean, I think we all know that the very best of science fiction simply uses the future and any associated technology as a backdrop, right? To actually tell real stories, real human stories. 
And I think they, so far they've done a, a tremendous job with this series, uh, in, in doing that. I am not a fan, A, of the name Grogu. I, <laughs> it, it, it does not roll off the tongue. I'm, I'm sorry. It just doesn't. It doesn't begin with a Y. Uh, it does not begin with a Y, or at least doesn't have a Y in it. And then I am extremely enraged that they destroyed the Razor Crest. I am not okay with that. That was, that, that was, be, that was becoming an iconic ship. And I, I want to see how that problem gets fixed. Anyway. Uh, one thing that you raised, Pat, and also that I think is is was introduced by by Canon there was the idea that Rogue One and the Mandalorian have done an amazing job of creating even more complex, realistic human stories set in the Star Wars universe. It uses that as a backdrop to tell really compelling stories about people or aliens if you don't want to consider them people but 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 beings um that are undergoing intense character arcs like canon mentioned in this wasteland this vast expanse of unknowable i mean you could view it as the you know the sort of untamed west to sort of play into that mythos that they're invoking but it, it, it but it's space and you know obviously sci-fi and western have always kind of played with each other in in, in those tropes in that way but they do this, I think, in a few different ways, and I think it really is shown in the penultimate episodes of both seasons so far of The Mandalorian. In season one, you have uh, Werner Herzog's the client character who says the line at one point, the Empire improves every system it touches. You know, judge it by any metric, safety, prosperity, trade, opportunity, peace. You compare imperial rule to what's happening now. Look outside. Is the world really more peaceful since the revolution? I see nothing but death and chaos. And entirely sure, that is a highly biased, um, very one-sided way of looking at things. But it does raise the question that a lot of people seeing the fallout of the rebels uh, and you know the blowing up of the Death Star might see when they look at what is left in the galaxy, especially when you go to places like the Outer Rim. I mean, Grief Karga at one point, Carl Weathers um, at one point says, you know, I wish they would just leave the Outer Rim alone so that we can we can sort of do this on our own. It's like an oddly like libertarian moment for a, a Star Wars movie so outright. Um, but then it also, in season two, episode seven, which is, I think, my favorite episode in the entire series so far. I think it's got great action and amazing character arcs when you've got Mayfeld coming back and sort of uh, battling with his demons and what he's done in the past and how he changes and uh, Din Djarin, we finally see him remove his helmet in front of someone and he gives him a pass. Um, he says, you know, Empire, New Republic, it's all the same to these people. Um, somewhere, someone in the galaxy is ruling, and there are others that are being ruled. It comes down to power and how it is being exercised. Does the Star Wars universe in general, in your experience, and maybe specifically the Mandalorian, come down on either side about how it feels about not maybe just power, but state power and how it's used? Like, is is the New Republic any better than the empire is what the uh, imperial guard on that ship when they try and uh, kidnap dr pershing right where he says like it, it's basically an act of terrorism that when they blow up the death star like 
I think about in that conversation that happens in Clerks when they're talking about, um, you know, in A New Hope, there was, you know, it was already built. It was staffed by stormtroopers and Imperials when they blew up the Death Star. So great, evil's defeated. But in Return of the Jedi, it was still under construction. They must have had independent contractors there who were innocent, <laughs> and you blew them up. So, so, but it sort of celebrates everything. Does Star Wars come down on a side about that type of broad issue? I think in the original trilogy, the answer was a clear cut yes, right? What they've done uh, with the Mandalorian, especially, is they've kind of, um, you know, muddied the waters a little bit. Um, and, and I think in, in the background, in the backdrop, I think the answer is probably still yes, but they're, they're doing a great job of kind of showing the gray areas. And, and you see a guy like Bill Burr and, and what a tremendous addition to the cast. I'm, I, I'm hoping that they'll actually make him a regular, uh, in, in season three because he has those ter- terrific comedic chops. But at the same time, he showed, in my view at least, an enormous depth as a serious dramatic actor, specifically Landry with that scene, uh, in, in the, uh, in the little imperial, I'll, I'll put that in quotation marks. The K&W cafeteria. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Um, it, it was, uh, it was just a great, a great exchange, a great setup. And then the way that he blew that officer away. And then the way that Pascal played that scene, it's like, you really bought that that the the Mando was thinking, "Holy shit! I can't believe he just did that." We're going to have to like really shoot our way out of here. And it's because, you know, he really he really had this moment of I think clarity. And this is this is where Star Wars tries to do both things, and they're both important. So Star Wars is radically committed to the from a certain point of view ideology of A New Hope put forward uh, by Ben Kenobi. Like they have stuck to this throughout their entire run. The very fact that you learn that you have an empire that was once a republic, that uh, clone troopers are what become the stormtroopers, that you have heroes who become villains. Um, this is Star Wars constantly telling you that, you know, the path of good intentions, you're always just like one angry, you know, breath away from becoming the bad guy in this story. And they have stuck to that throughout. And if they wanted to have a message about um, good intentions and in government naturally leading to good outcomes. They would have had the new republic be successful and they didn't. They blew, they blew them up. They blew them up as soon as they canonized the new republic. And it's, it's because Star Wars is, is constantly driven by, I think, the correct view of human nature, which is that it is more going in a circle and, and we're not constantly just progressing and getting better. Um, I don't hold that view. I don't hold the human progress <laughs> view <laughs> of, uh, of humankind. I know that's controversial on a Cato podcast, but, um, you know, I share it with you. Star, Star Wars, I think, gets that right. But um, Bill Burr's character has that moment of clarity listening to Lieutenant Hess talk about Operation Sender and lives that need to be taken for a greater good. And he shoots the guy in a, in a moment of anger because there is evil. There, not everything is subjective. Not everything's gray. Um, Star Wars tries to tell you, like, look, like everybody tries to do their best, but you can be evil. Yeah, I think that's interesting because the, to me, the fundamental statement in Star Wars is that power is dangerous and that too much of the power can lead you to the dark side. That thirst for power is the fundamental conflict in Star Wars. So as it applies to governments, it's the same thing. I mean, 
we have the the sort of don't join from DJ in the Last Jedi that sort of echoes the same quest, the same uh, conflict posed in the penultimate episode of season two from Mandalorian. That hey, look, everyone is doing bad things. Like, are you cha- what are you chasing? What are you going after? Like, don't be part of this. Uh, to me, I think we'll actually see more of this in one of the new series, uh, the Rangers of the New Republic. It's going to be Space Cops, sounds like. <laughs> Which is where I suspect we'll find more Bill Burr, for good or ill, depending on where you fall on that. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> he just implies the existence of Space Boston, which, to, you know, <laughs> kind of blows my mind. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that, that, that quest for power is, is one of the, the interesting things for me, is state, can states be good? And and I think I agree with uh, with what everyone has said about the the Star Wars universe's view of human nature. You know, what made the original trilogy so compelling from a character development uh, point of view was you had this cartoonishly uh, evil, you know, uh, uh, Lord Vader, um, who then you find out that uh, that he's Luke's father. Then he turns away from the dark side to the light, and and there is this sort of there is there's this sort of tension and expectation that the original trilogy built up that this was actually a good person all along and it left us with this question how did he become so evil and that's why we nerds who were in the theaters in 1977 were dying for the phantom menace to come out uh dying for this story to be told about how uh, a good person as George Lucas even put it in interviews how a good person thinking he's doing good ends up turning toward evil and becoming so just uh, inexplicably evil. And then the, the prequels came along and completely botched that. I mean, it was totally unconvincing. The, the, the performances, the writing, uh, it was not a plausible uh, conversion from this, you know, uh, cute little boy on Tatooine to this, to this dark Lord of the Sith who's slaughtering uh, Padawans. Um, and, uh, and, and so the, the things that we're seeing now in Rogue One, in The Mandalorian, where they are are consciously trying to explain from the perspective of these people who you may think are evil, why they're doing the things that they are doing, really makes the series more compelling, is a much more accurate statement of human nature, and and is also you know, and is therefore a more accurate accurate reflection of politics because because uh even the fascists, even the Nazis, even the communists thought that they were doing good. And Solonison says, if you really want someone to do evil, you got to give them an ideology that tells them that that's, that that's doing good. And, and so, uh, I think that's what makes this, this so compelling for me. And, I, and the question of what is it, what does Star Wars say about the state and about state power? Uh, it, I, I think it's basically that, that power is, power is dangerous. The, the prequels hinted in this direction, but again, in a cartoonish way when uh, Emperor Palpatine said the Jedi don't want to get rid of their power. But uh, as I just want to say that as an economist, one thing that bothers me about the Star Wars universe is and, and, and what it has to say about state power and you know whether the Empire is good for you know, uh, helps every place it touches is here. You've got a galaxy with with how many systems thousands of planets and civilizations across this galaxy okay 
this is a fantastic opportunity for federalism to conduct experiments <laughs> and have the economists measure what kinds of institutional arrangements produce the best outcomes. And, and, and we've seen nothing of this. We haven't heard from any of them. It's always just fighting for power, power, power. Uh, so I, I guess what I'm putting in a plug for is the Star Wars universe needs more economists. <laughs> <laughs> The the prequels, I mean, the prequels touched a little bit, and we know this because of the the opening scroll. Like why we got into conflict in the first place, why a cycle of new new governments and war was set off after a thousand years of relative peace under the Republic. Trade and openness and economic arrangements between all the planets of the galaxy was making things work, but corruption and opulence were festering on Coruscant, and. One of the greatest installations to the new canon that I have picked out is right after the Return of the Jedi, or I guess it takes place around the time of the Mandalorian when the New Republic is being built. The New Republic does have political parties, which the old Republic did not, which is bizarre. Uh, you, you kind of, it's easy to see, it's easy to see how it just fell into, um, oligarchy because nobody was there for anything but self-interest. But the New Republic had political parties, the populists and the centrists. Leia headed up the populist party, which was a, the equivalent of a state's rights party. It was really adamant about local control, um, the New Republic not dictating what sort of arrangements could be made between different planets and allowing planets to go their own way if they wanted to. And then you had the centrists who really believed in the idea of the empire and a unitary galactic government, but they wanted Wanted to do it right this time, <laughs> and <laughs> sort of, sort of like the Federalists versus the Anti-Federalists. Yeah, and it's 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 really really cool that they actually built that out. And you know, when I think about what went wrong with the prequels, I'm a little rebellious against the idea that they were a complete failure. But what what Star Wars has always done is they've planted mile markers in the timeline and gone, all right, we're going to do the Galactic Civil War, we're going to do the Clone Wars, and then we're going to do um, uh, whatever the, the prequel trilogy or the sequel trilogy was, the battle against the First Order, and then we're going to fill in the gaps. And they filled in the prequel gaps with the Clone Wars TV series, gave us explanations for how Anakin could have become so corrupt and dark and ready to kill younglings. And, um, and then they lay out the sequel trilogy, and now they've offered us all these new installations to help that make sense like i the entire the entire first order thing didn't make sense now it does and the mandalorian is largely responsible for helping it be clear and we're getting um some really obvious clues i think about where a lot of this is going to go in seasons three and hopefully beyond and, and we get that with um towards the very tail end of episode seven of season two after Ahsoka has defeated the former Imperial female. And we find out that, that the, that the master that she's looking for is none other than Grand Admiral Thrawn, uh, from, from Star Wars Rebels, which, which leads me to believe that what we have on the one hand is Moff Gideon clearly committed to, uh, resurrecting the empire. And, and possibly answering to Thrawn. We don't know this yet. Um, but then on the other hand, we have this first order thing, which is clearly a different faction. So I'm, I'm just wondering if this is going to become like a thing, essentially, where we begin to see these different dark side fat, for lack of a better framing, these other, these different dark side factions, essentially 
fighting it out to see who comes out on top. And I, I think that's a, a great point. And it goes back to the old extended universe stuff where you had a, um, you had different factions within the, the imperial remnants and you had all these different imperial officers vying for power in the post Palpatine era. And Thrawn was a major player and ended up being like the, the guy who kind of won out in the imperial remnant wars. And I think that what they've basically now made room for is to rebuild that where the first order is the Palpatine loyalist faction. They are the people committed to the idea of the contingency plan, which uh, Hess in episode seven uh, mentions with Operation Sender. This is after the emperor is to, is killed. Certain imperial officers, only a, a certain core of imperial officers have a mandate to start wiping out the empire. If the empire was not strong enough to protect its leader, it doesn't deserve to stand. And so they open fire and blow up their own worlds and their own armies. And then those core officers are all to gather in the outer reaches and rebuild. And they're a radical, radical group. That's why they're like so radicalized in the Mandalorian. They're willing to kill themselves or take down their ship if Bo-Katan takes it over. Like they really believe in this. And so they are the ones who are going to rebuild the First Order. Thrawn is out there doing something different. And we're still going to find out what that is. And I can't wait. This raises an important uh, question that I think a lot of people are hoping is going to turn out well, but we are obviously still waiting to see. Uh, as of right now, Disney has just recently announced another, I think, 11 different series <laughs> and movies as of recently uh, that, that we've brought up a few of before. Uh, now, Star Wars, during the sort of prequel trilogy and even before that there was the sort of star wars legends which became the extended universe and there was a a huge amount of of content that was being created a, a lot of books and things like that um but it, it did not have the same uh, spotlight on it that the disney plus series are going to have and a lot of people i think are wondering especially after the newest trilogy came out and it did well commercially, but got sort of mixed uh, feedback from fans uh, and, and even some of the cast members looking back <laughs> on it. Um, is Disney going to burn everyone out on Star Wars or is this going to, do you think, inject new life into it? Or will Star Wars simply just become another backdrop that eventually sort of loses meaning and it just becomes space because they're like okay now we've got cops in space now we've got cowboys in space now we've got uh it's we're gonna get rogue squadron and there's gonna be a you know top gun in space or something what is this gonna do for the franchise uh and you know intellectual property like it in the future i think it's really important to uh keep in mind what niche each of those different projects lands in. There's an anime uh, anthology series uh, that's going to come out that I'm going to love, and my dad's not going to watch it. <laughs> like, you know, he'll yeah. watch it if I go over and make him do it, but he's going to be like, it's a cartoon, I'm not watching that. I'm like, okay, <laughs> fair enough. And, you know, there's the, the droids project that's coming out from um, ILM, and it's basically just about droids, that's all we know. ILM wanted to draw some droids with some new technology, so they're making a droids show. I'm sure that's going to be for my kids. It'll be great. And there's a new tie-in to their uh, book properties for the new High Republic era, which is the golden age 
of the Jedi. It's supposed to set up the fall from the prequels. You gotta have the best, the best before you see the worst. Um, but that's going to be, I think, probably for kids. Uh, so then you have these these other properties that I suspect will be more like those Netflix Defenders series, the um, the Daredevil, the uh, Luke Cage, where they kind of tie in together. I, I think the Rangers will probably be something along that. You'll get like Mayfield and Cara Dune and maybe a little Grief Cart, I hope. He's hilarious. He's amazing. <laughs> um and in that way, it can avoid burnout. But I do kind of worry with Ahsoka, Book of Boba Fett, and Mandalorian all kind of running together. That's a lot. Um, so so while, while I think a lot of them can fit in niches, and I think you could probably do a movie or two a year, I do worry about, like, the same season playing three adult-oriented or family-oriented shows. Like, eh, I think they can make it work, but I think maybe... They're trying to make up for some lost time, and it will have some saturation. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if you look at the original trilogy, one of the big reasons that it was successful was you had the same team basically in place, right? Uh, Kaz Dan, of course, played an outsized role, I think, in the success of that. And, and I, I, that just brings me back to the point I made earlier, which is I, I think that J.J. Abrams is a great director. I, you know, but he, he doesn't simply, he never channeled it the way that John Favreau and Dave Filoni channel Star Wars. These guys inhabited, especially Favreau. I think he just spent so much time learning from Lucas, being around Lucas, uh, absorbing it all that their success so far, in my judgment at least, both from a from a critical standpoint, uh, but probably long term also from a financial standpoint, is going to stand in in contrast, in in large measure, to the folks that were responsible for helming you know the last three uh, trilogy movies. So, on the one hand, I have some real hope um, for for the series that are coming because they have spent a lot of time on the Mandalorian really developing a lot of additional directorial talent, right? I mean, take, taking in a lot of folks who clearly also, I think Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, Ron Howard's daughter, uh, a great a great actress in her own right, uh, I think she actually has as much or more talent as a director, quite frankly. Um, I, I love the episodes that she's done. I, but I, I mean, I like all of them. And I think in the one, on the one hand, that's what gives me some hope that we may not have, you know, a burnout or crash and burn kind of situation. But on the other hand, it is possible to have too much of a good thing. And, and, and you can go to the well too many times. And I, I think, you know, Disney has probably felt a lot of pressure knowing that there's going to be a gap between the end of, uh, the original trilogy in terms of movies and the next, you know, whatever it's going to be. It just seems to me that some of this stuff, um, is kind of rushed and I'm, I'm hoping that we don't have, um, stuff essentially come out that people are going to go, eh, maybe they shouldn't have like gone there. Cause you just, they're on a roll. I would hate to see them, you know, crash and burn because they tried to do too much. Yeah. You want to go out on a high note if you can. <laughs> well, I don't know if you do. You want to get to the point of, um, of uh, of of diminishing returns. If you want to maximize your profits, you know oh, what I told you, my kids. You damned economist! You're always <laughs> on about diminishing returns. 
when I told when I told my kids that I was going to be doing for work a podcast about Star Wars, they said, "Oh, come on, come, let's go watch The Mandalorian again, so you can prepare. Let's go watch Rebels. So let's go watch um, Clone Wars, uh, so you can do your homework." And the fact that you know I'm uh, I, I'm a middle aged dad who loves Star Wars, and I've got these kids who love Star Wars, and as Nick says, there's all this content for uh, different market segments that like Star Wars, that appealing to them in different ways. But 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 just the fact that I've got my kids dragging me to watch this thing that I love suggests, of course, Disney is going to milk this for all it's worth. <laughs> of course, they're going to be putting out. Whatever they think they can make money on, and of course, some of it is going to be garbage. Um, hopefully, what Pat says about what they're learning means that it's that, that most of it won't be, and the stuff they don't make money on is stuff that is good, but that people are just uh, oh gosh, you know, I just don't have time to to, dev- uh, uh, to devote that much of uh, my of my week to Star Wars. But but some of it is going to be yes. You know, some of it probably we have to brace ourselves for some of it disappointing us. But as long as they keep putting out the Rogue Ones and the Mandalorians, then that's I'm I'm all for this this process. There's now, we've now, got a buffet that, now, and buffets are good. Uh, there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of good stuff on there, and you can pick what is for you. The problem with the theatrical release model that Disney was locked into because that's that was the pre-COVID world was that when you put out a theatrical release, it is like a statement. It is saying like this is the next chapter in Star Wars, like it or hate it. And when you do that, like I felt like a lot of fans, I just felt a little overwhelmed. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm and taking this, this Ray story. And then there's Rogue One and then there was Solo and it was just hitting you all the time. And theatrical releases are a lot more of an emotional roller coaster for the Star Wars faithful than series are. Series are like, which part of the story is it that you like? And where do you want to learn a little bit more about the fun factoids of the galaxy? And that's what we have now. I actually don't think that this counts um, towards oversaturation because I felt very strongly that we were getting too much a couple of years ago. This new model, I think, will work um, because it's a new world now. So COVID saved Star Wars. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) I eagerly await for Kingdom Hearts 4 when Mickey Mouse joins the Star Wars Wars world and summons his lightsaber keyblade (laughs) along with the cast of Final Fantasy and uh, Donald Duck. (laughs) Well, we've we've already got the Elder Wand in uh, The Mandalorian, but um, you bring up Mickey Mouse and I wanted to say that, uh, you know, the 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 fact that i embrace disney putting out all of these uh all of these uh, all this different star wars content uh, uh should not be uh, taken as uh an indication of where i stand on uh disney milking the ip system uh to keep uh, its uh, copyright of mickey mouse immortal and and doing the same thing for star wars and so forth yeah, one of the interesting historical things in in the franchise is the history of star wars like lucas arts games they put out a ton of games and they were largely trash i own all of them and i played all of them (laughs) but most of them are bad they're like half conceived reskins of other games that are better with some really really good gems and if that's what we get it's fine but 
like I said, I always look at like my dad. He likes Star Wars. He made me keep trying Star Wars till he thought I was like ready to like it or not like it for real, and I liked it. But he's not going to watch like the Freemaker Adventures for Lego, like their fun family show. Just like he wasn't going to play Galactic Assault Battle Force Commander Battlegrounds reskin of like Red Alert. He's he's not going to. That's the other stuff that's always on the shelf. The, the big releases, the Knights of the Old Republic, things that have changed the franchise, that's what we're hoping for. But there is a there is also that point where you're like, oh, it's a Star Wars game. Like, uh, I don't know. You need to have keep having those big hits. Uh, and and I, I'm hopeful that we can weather that the same way we weathered the video games. You're like, I'll, uh, I'll look at the demo. <laughs> we'll, we'll see what, what it's going to be. You know, I'll check out the first episode. Oh, that's a kid's show. Maybe I'll just let it sit. Um, but yeah, I, I think there is precedent for Star Wars thriving, even in an ecosystem where it's full of maybe stretched budgets, which, you know, we saw a little bit, I think, this season on Mandalorian, and maybe overambition. Nick, I have a question for you. How do you, how do you think they're going to make audiences aware of what projects are keystone projects. Like, because I, I think like the series are now filling the roles that comics and books used to play for deep fans. Oh, I know extra little things about the universe <laughs> because I go to conventions and I, I read every comic. <laughs> and that's, that's different from your, your trilogy fans, the people who all love Star Wars trilogy movies. But how in this, in this model, do they make it known you need to watch this show? This is the next big thing in Star Wars. I, I think that's the big, my big concern is because it's all on Disney Plus, you can put it in different like menus and you can advertise like kind of like Netflix does, like on boot up. If you have your kid's account, it's like, hey, the new Star Wars Resistance cartoon. But like, I get the new Mando stuff. I guess you can do that. But historically, it's like Cartoon Network plays uh, car- the. The Clone Wars. And so you know who that audience is. It's preteens and teens. That's who it's targeting. Like Toonami or whatever. Adult Swim. I don't know. I don't watch it anymore. But when you're a kid, you know the programming blocks. You know how to target. But it's all one channel. I don't know because Disney is such a monolith with its Disney brand. So I I don't know where the spaces fit in that. And it's one of the things that does very much concern me. Like, you can't spin it off to, like, Amazon Prime like Lucas would have done. Like, I don't know, Amazon Prime gets some weird kids show. Go make it. Cool. We'll take our cut. (laughs) What does The Mandalorian do about the theme of parenting and fatherhood that the, uh, the previous installments have done? Because obviously fatherhood specifically is a huge uh, like cornerstone as a theme to this entire franchise with Luke and uh, and Anakin etc and now we have this sort of found family relationship between uh the Mandalorian and the child um and it becomes this sort of strange what what was a bounty hunter bounty relationship grows into i think one of the more positive family relationships that we see in the franchise what is the significance of that well uh fatherhood is a huge theme of of the entire universe i mean most of your main characters uh are damaged in some way because they didn't have a father 
or because their father uh, abandoned them in some way or, or, or was, was, was separated from them. So, um, so, and, 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 uh, and Din Djarin is one of those, you know, uh, his, he, he lost his, his father was killed at a young age. And, and so it, it will be interesting to see how they develop this theme and, um, and, uh, you know, maybe I, I'm struggling to think of a, a healthy parent child relationship in the universe. Uh, obviously Leia was uh, or raised by loving parents, but we don't see much of them. Uh, we don't see much of that relationship. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how they do that. So you were, we're talking here about our first kind of interspecies, uh, uh, adopted uh family kind of situation here right and um we we also see some parallels you know michael alluded to the whole issue of of violence uh early in din jarn's life and it's literally in the last uh last episode of season 1 where you get the the maximum length flashback and you actually see that oh wow he's rescued by clan vizsla He's rescued by Death Watch. <laughs> this is like a major thing. So, okay, that that's a big deal. But then you see that it's it's separatist heavy uh, attack droids and separatist attack ships. So there there's your Clone Wars uh, tie-in right there. And and then you go back to you know little Grogu, and this is a guy who a little guy who is saved somehow during the purge you know, the most violent act to ever take place uh, in the Jedi Temple. So there's, you're talking about two characters here from a young age who wound up being scarred by violence and having to deal with violence. And they're still having to deal with violence literally in every episode, you know, and how they're, how they come to terms with that, how they, um, how they essentially watch each other's back. And then, and then at the end of season two, we get this break and, and it leaves you wondering, okay, how how is this relationship going to actually come back together? Because you, I at least I left I left that episode with a strong sense that Din Djarin absolutely did not really want to let the kid go, and I had the sense that the kid himself was like, "Okay, I have to do this," but right. So how how are they going to like you know wind up bringing that back together? That that's what I because I I can't even I can't even conceive now of the Mandalorian going forward as a series without the two of them together. I have a lot of difficulty like figuring out how that works. Yeah. And they'll, they'll certainly have to sell us on it. I, I think season three, we're going to Mandalore for uh, the battle for the the throne of that planet, but on fatherhood and parenthood, um, I think I, I want to make a point and it's going to be kind of, kind of a weird arc, but with, with the Mandalorian, they were telling a story throughout about him conquering his dogma and realizing that he was like in some weird, you know, Mandalorian cult and that there is a wider world and being a Mandalorian is this bigger thing than, than a religion, like a certain set of rules. And he doesn't know why he's doing it at a certain point. He's like, I was raised this way, but I've discovered this thing that matters to me. Like I feel love. I feel, um, obligation towards this other thing. And at some point to save this thing and to love this thing, I'm going to have to give up 
my my dogma. I'm going to have to give up a, a certain belief I have about taking my helmet off. And that was this message throughout the show about finding what matters in life, like what is your calling and what really makes your heart move. And my thing was Star Wars. And it was one of the last op-eds I wrote on Star Wars for The Examiner was that Star Wars is begging its fans to grow up. Like they, they're telling all of us, you need to grow up. You need to find a Padawan. You need to share the force. Like you yourself have to also move on in life. And this, this show I thought did a really nice job of offering a story to people about the virtue of being a parent, sharing things that you love with people and finding your calling. Because a lot of Star Wars fans, I think, need to realize that this is not for them at a certain point. It is for their youngling. And it is the force is meant to be shared. Um, so I just I'm glad Star Wars told another story about growing up and and purpose and discovery, because that's what makes Star Wars powerful. I think that's right. And I think the interesting thing of what your parents pass on to you is shown throughout, uh, maybe with a few notable exceptions, but as we said, the, the parent relationships are terrible in Star Wars, right? I mean, Saw raises Jin to be his best terrorist at 16, and then she's like, well, <laughs> you these other terrorists me. might kill you because you know an Imperial. And you're like, oh, well. Great job, Saw. Uh, so I abandoned you on a planet to fend for yourself. Uh, and of course, you know, we have even Leia, Bail Organa, the king of Alderaan, I guess. Uh, Senator. He, he, yeah. See, he uses his daughter as a rebel agent to undermine the, go- like, very dangerous government. We see her in Rebels running missions. We see her in Rogue One on a transport in the middle of a giant battle and she's 18. I mean, they're not pulling punches with their kids. There are, there's one really positive relationship and it's Owen and Baru with Luke. And you see a glimpse of it at the beginning of a new hope. He's raised by loving adoptive parents who've given him boundaries and taught him morality. And it prepares him for the trials that he has ahead. It's not Obi-Wan. It's not Yoda who, prepare him for that moment with his father it's his adoptive parents huh never thought about that it's own in baru and you see in mandalorian that grogu has some real darkness he's not he lashes out like you know like my four-year-old lashes out right <laughs> you don't give her some candy she really wants it she gets mad goes off the handle you're like okay well i guess so but you see grogu not just force choking kara Dune, when she's arm wrestling Mando, you also see him fairly sadistically beating up those stormtroopers in uh, Moff Gideon's cruiser. He's not just throwing them to the side so they go away. He's messing with them. He's beating them together in the air. He's screwing with them. It's, there's some darkness there. Yeah. And notwithstanding him eating the frog lady's kids. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Cultural <laughs> erasure. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, as you see that conflict coming and you know the darkness that is going to reach him at Luke's Academy, you see another solid parenting uh, foundation for a potential redemption if Grogu does start to fall in with Kylo or under Palpatine's sort of remote control influence. However, that is supposed to work. I don't know. Rise of Skywalker was a mess. But, uh, 
you know, there are a lot of implications for the darkness ahead and the darkness in Grogu and the amount of healing he has to do. And I think this is the second time that we've seen a parent, a parenting relationship prepare you ahead of time for the ability to confront that darkness and maybe even overcome it. And now for the part of the show where we share all of the other things that we've been enjoying at home. This is Locked In. So in keeping with the theme of this particular episode, I note that on the day that the last episode of season two of The Mandalorian came out, uh, Obsidian uh, released on iOS Knights of the Old Republic 2, The Sith Lords, uh, which I have been playing obsessively ever since. Um, I, I was never, I've never been like a huge fan of controllers and all the rest of that. So most of my gaming takes place on, on, uh, on my iPad. That's probably because also I'm an old man, uh, and I just don't like messing around with the other stuff, but, um, generally not considered to be quite as good as the original. I would, I would take issue with that in some respects, but it's, it's nice now that after having played Knights of the Old Republic, the original, on my iPad, probably over a thousand times at this point, which which tells you that I probably need some kind of help. Um, it's nice to have that that extra little uh, that extra little thing going on, and then uh, a, a wide variety, essentially, of, of books that I'm taking uh, a dive into as well that have uh, absolutely nothing to do with a galaxy far, far away. I just finished the book by Free Beacon Man of the Year, uh, Matt Iglesias, One Billion Americans. I really enjoyed it. Um, I wanted to pick up two books while I was in uh, quarantine this, uh, this fall and winter. Um, one from inside my, my bubble and my idea circle and one from out. And Matt Iglesias' One Billion Americans was a really, really cool policy manifesto for why we should have a population of one billion and challenging a couple of narratives on the right, some narratives on the left that are doom and gloom about population size and making an optimistic argument about why we should be the largest country and most populous country in the world uh, to have a, an American century. And uh, I never really thought about some of his arguments in the way that he made them. Um, and it made me think and challenge some of my ideas, and uh, I, I recommend anybody pick it up. I am uh, working through Whip by David Bonnier, um, which is pretty lengthy, so I've been enjoying it. Uh, reading uh, A Little Blue Truck to my son about a thousand times a day. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and for more fun for myself, um, I've been uh, reading the Stormlight Archive books by Brandon Sanderson, which are uh, sort of epic fantasy that's really about uh, learning to uh, live with love and accept yourself and your flaws and, and sort of move through life. Uh, they have like magic and, you know, supernatural fun things, but, but really there's a, a very interesting psychological core to the books. And uh, they're also like 50 hours on audio or like 800 to 1,000 pages each. So not a, not a small undertaking, <laughs> but they're, they're pretty, pretty wonderful. So I uh, recently and for the first time, uh, I guess I just put it down. I just finished it. I uh, read 1984 by George Orwell. I had bought – I had read Animal Farm and I bought it to, uh, to read to my kids – 
um, and, and they enjoyed it. Uh, it was, uh, part of a set and, uh, came with the 84. So I thought, all right, I'll go ahead and, uh, finally read this belatedly. And, and it was just, uh, fantastic. It, uh, you know, my main takeaway from it, uh, is that, um, so much of the desire, uh, to, uh, exert power over other people, even when you think you're doing it for good or right reasons, because you're trying to promote good in the world at heart. A lot of it is just status is just the desire to have status and, uh, to assert status by, uh, controlling other people. Uh, not sure I'm going to recommend it to the kids just yet. I mean, I've got an, <laughs> I've got an 11 year old and seven year old twins. Um, and I think the 11 year old would enjoy it except for maybe the torture parts. You know, he, <laughs> I think he, uh, I, I think he may have a hard time sleeping after some of that. So I'm going to hold off mm-hmm. on recommending that to him. But, um, but now I, I, I see what all the fuss is about and, and, and the, the larger framework <laughs> around the, the boot in a human face forever and, and other, other lines that I've been hearing about um, uh, for so long. But, uh, and now I'm looking for uh, what my next book is going to be. As I was late to the game with 1984, I was also late to the game with Schitt's Creek, but I finished that recently. And wow, that was amazing. I can't recommend that uh, highly enough. The, uh, the the talk about character development. Um, I also uh, am, uh, I guess, oh, I guess it's the first. So uh, I've got a guilty pleasure that I've been enjoying, which is Cobra Kai. If you're a child of the 80s and watch The Karate Kid. <laughs> You will find this uh, ridiculous and often hysterical, uh, some, only sometimes painful. Um, <laughs> but also, also, uh, I was really pleased with. I think it's the third season that uh, uh, of um, of Big Mouth that just ah. that just wrapped on Netflix. I don't know if you've ever seen Big Mouth. This is a, an yes. animated uh, 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 series about preteens and sexuality and relationships and so forth. And completely vulgar, uh, and uh, and and wonder, just delightfully so. I mean, and, but with such a wonderful message about uh, such wonderful messages for kids that age. Pity I don't want my kids to watch it at this point because it's so raunchy. <laughs> Uh, but the third season came out. Uh, I was anticipating it eagerly, uh, a little worried that it might you know, suffer from some burnout, but it just didn't. I thought it was uh, terrific. And so if you've seen any of the first two seasons, I think you'll be pleased with the third. Uh, I have been doing a lot of uh, things in my free time over the holidays, especially. Uh, I just played a really great little puzzle game that you can get on i think pretty much any platform i played it on switch um called super liminal um and you are sort of in a dream like a waking dream you're lucid dreaming in this world where you have to go through these series of chambers that involve puzzles about forced perspective and weird like shape changing blocks and you're you're solving puzzles by picking things up and making them bigger by making them appear farther away it's very hard to describe but it is brilliant brilliant design an interesting story um not overwhelming challenging and can be done in a day so i played it in one day i i really really highly recommend super liminal um 
And I also, for Christmas, got myself a couple role-playing game books. I got uh, Morkborg, which is like a really old-school, like, brutal, um, uh, uh, high-fantasy, gothic role-playing game that is influenced by, like, Nordic black metal. Um, (laughs) So it's, it's like, really brutal, and I'm excited to play it and just die over and over again. But the what I really love about it is the book itself is so beautiful and is like this mishmash of crazy graphic design and is is really amazing. And Kids on Bikes, which is a, a tabletop role playing game, sort of in the vein of Stranger Things, where you play kids in the middle of a small town in the middle of nowhere who get into uh trouble with secret government bases and possible aliens and you know your kids on your bikes and running around the middle of the woods in indiana or something uh so i'm excited to play that with some friends as soon as i can get some people in person and we'll be able to play some some tabletop games again thanks for listening if you would like to tell us why we're wrong about Star Wars, as is required when listening to anything about the subject, make sure to let us know on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock, with an E, like the philosopher, Pod. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.